Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein. I'm a doctor, activist, and organizer, and this is Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Williams. Thank you all for returning to the show. I am a trauma surgeon at the University of Chicago, serving Chicago's South Side. I am also a surgical intensivist, getting ready for this COVID pandemic. Uh, but today, I have one of my favorite guests. This is Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He is an assistant professor of internal medicine at NYU. And if you're following the news right now, New York is at the center of the pandemic in the United States right now. So I'm certain he is busy, and we appreciate him taking time to be with us today. You can go back to season two and hear his first episode of the show, which was called When Healthcare and Politics Unite, because not only is he a doctor, but he's also an activist and organizer working towards achieving healthcare equity in this country. Dr. Goldstein, thank you for taking time to be with us today. So glad to join you. Sure. So, you know, with COVID-19 dominating the world's media cycles and the world's uh, healthcare attention right now, there's a lot we can discuss. We can discuss uh, the lack of PPE. We can discuss testing. We can discuss uh, leadership in this time of crisis. But I, what I want to hear from you, because you always have a, uh, you're always proactive in how you think about healthcare uh, and think about healthcare equity. What happens, or what should we be thinking about happening after the pandemic? Like when we look back upon this uh, two, three years from now, what do you hope we should be thinking or doing at that time? Yeah, I think it's really important for us to stage out what we need at different moments and what needs to happen to make those moments possible. And so, you know, I think from the vantage point of two or three years down the line, we want to have global public health systems that are robust and healthcare systems that can really, you know, help those public health systems uh, nip any pandemics in the bud but also, you know, take care of people with needs that they have. Um, and I think that at this moment, you know, we really are seeing the fragility of our healthcare systems, of our public health systems. We're seeing how they're, you know, underinvested in and then fragmented along national and municipal lines. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the U.S. public health, uh, public health system. It's one of those unseen heroes, right? When public health is working correctly, you don't know about it. It's preventing epidemics. It's keeping people healthy and safe within a communities. We only notice it, if, assuming you're not working in public health, you only notice it when it breaks down, when something uh, is not going right for society in terms of health. So where are the areas that you feel needs to be improved nationally, and then you mentioned global health care systems. So how do you link those two together? You know, I, I love um, this metaphor. There's a lot of uh, people who are concerned that when public health is successful, people 
either don't notice it or they say, why did we make such a fuss? Because everything's fine. And I, I like to think about this metaphor of asteroids. Like if an asteroid was coming towards Earth, everyone would recognize that. And if we blew up the asteroid, we'd be like, oh, we are so thankful that we took all that effort to blow up that asteroid because we knew it was headed here and, you know, everything is saved. So with public health things, we actually have to do a much better job giving people that memory, giving people the framework to say, like, we actually saw the trajectory of this crisis and it was averted. We did the things, but we know, we remember that the problem could have happened. And so we need to do a much better job talking about um, the crises that we can and do avert um, so that people remember them. To your, your question about, like, what are the things that we actually need to do that? You know, the, the, the list is long, but I would say, you know, the most important thing is the U.S. is really uh, underinvested in its public health systems, and there really isn't much of a global public health system to speak of. Um, and, you know, we can't really treat, like, viruses don't really think of uh, borders or anything like that as uh, meaningful. And so, you know, we have to act uh, as one humanity in that way. And so what does this mean? It means when we uh, have a potential pandemic on our hands, we need to have the surveillance systems to notice it sooner. And then we have to have the systems of uh, developing rapid tests and the ability to trace contacts of people who get infected and then to quarantine those people who are exposed or infected. And then we have to be able to support those people who are, who are living in isolation or quarantine um, because they still need to get their basic needs met. And so that requires like a really robust system. That's not the kind of system that people can, uh, you know, rely on uh, like the healthcare system for it's a different type of thing. Healthcare is when you feel unwell and you actually pursue care. And this needs to be a much more proactive system that actually reaches out into the community, finds what's going on and protects us all. And so that requires a lot of investment in terms of the scientific infrastructure and data infrastructure for doing surveillance, for doing contact tracing. But it also requires a, a huge amount of human resources. Um, and you know, I have colleagues who have worked in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak, and, you know, they've utilized uh, amazing systems of community health workers. And so, you know, voices like Julia Mukherjee and Raj Punjabi have been calling for, you know, global community health worker investments, um, including in the U.S., to aid with things like testing and uh, contact tracing and quarantine support. Well, how do you get that? You mentioned the, the asteroid reference. And I'm, I'm thinking about the, I'm like, so I say the average American or just some American that is not in healthcare that's going about their normal lives. You're saying we need to one, give them that memory, which could lead to unnecessary panic and anxiety or to let them have no memory, which means they don't see the value in the public health system. Uh, how do you strike that balance of I mean, it's somewhat of a PR, uh, uh, public relations, communications strategy, right? We are important because we prevented this, but we can't tell you about every single one we prevent because that produces unnecessary anxiety and uh, and fear. So how do you get that across to the non-healthcare uh, American? Yeah, what if you lived in a building where there were no fire, uh, you know, alarms, there were no sprinklers, there were no smoke detectors, and then someone screamed fire, and you knew that, like, it's a maze to get out? That's when you would feel really worried. But 
just hearing someone yell fire, um, if there's a system that you can trust um, and you feel like there are leaders at the helm who are, um, you know, designing the system and responding to the crisis at hand uh, appropriately, people are, are confident and active. And, um, and I think the concerns about fear um, actually lead to us being less clear-headed. And what we really need to do is just be like, look, here's the reality. A million lives are at stake in the U.S. And our scenarios are we let that just happen. We don't let that happen, and we respond in these ways. And we are choosing to respond to protect the public health. And we're going to give you the confidence that we're going to support people through a lot of the changes and concerns that are being brought up by this crisis. If you heard that message that, like, a million lives are at stake, but we're doing the right things, you wouldn't panic. You'd be like, okay, like, we're, we're, you know, dealing with a crisis, but we hear that the, all of our, you know, concerns are being addressed. So for some people, a million date, a million lives may be a number that they cannot comprehend. Uh, how do you put that in the context for the average American to understand, like, why that is a big deal, losing a million lives to this pandemic? And I've heard some projections that it could possibly be two million, right? Uh, I think a million is on the, on the lower end of that uh, project, projection. What does that mean to someone? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we have to be sure that we're not letting the ambiguity around our projections keep us from the certainty of it being a high number. So we don't know if it's half a million or two million, um, but we do know it's a large number. And so I think it's important for us to actually say, like, it is quite a large number. And then as far as, you know, for communicating large numbers are not always the most helpful thing. So practically, what does this mean for a person hearing it? You know, the typical person knows anywhere from, you know, 200 people to 1,000 people. And that means that you will lose, you know, one loved one or or several loved ones, um, depending on, uh, you know, the degree to which this is a, a severe and unmitigated crisis versus it's tackled appropriately. And I think it's important for us to think about it as like, if you are a health worker, you will probably lose, you know, one or two or a handful of your colleagues. Um, if you know lots of older people, you'll probably lose a handful of uh, the people that you know. And so, you know, whether it's our loved ones or our, our coworkers or the people that we care for, um, you know, a lot of us are going to lose a lot of people. You know, I, I personally, um, you know, I, I you know, over a thousand patients that I care for and just thinking about the numbers and, and how much they could be affected. It's, it's scary thinking about, you know, my older parents and my aunts and uncles, it's scary. And I think all of us need to make it concrete and not just like an abstract large number. Um, and so I, uh, it's really important for us to make that tangible to people. We're, we're all at risk. There's this great line, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And this is showing that to be so true. Yeah, I, I think about that as well. Like we are all at risk, especially those in healthcare have to assume that every patient we come across is COVID positive. What does that mean for for our individual health? What does that mean for other patients we interact with? What does that mean for our our families? Uh, and it's an it's an unseen danger, which is, is sometimes difficult to, to comprehend and explain to people that aren't doing this this work. But I want to ask, how are you doing right now? You're in New York. Uh, unless you've been under a rock, you can't, <laughs> you cannot not know, can, 
the double negative there. Yeah. You must know that there is something happening in New York right now with the pan- pandemic. So you, as a healthcare worker in that scenario right now, what is your life like? Yeah, I think we, you know, we've been adjusting and it's been a lot to wrap our, our minds around as it's happened very quickly. I think it's important for us to remember the U.S. has been aware of this crisis for at least three months now and um, you know, has been slow to respond and slow to publicly communicate. And so I think a lot of us, even in New York, were sort of aware of this up until, you know, early March. And we were not yet, you know, moving. I think the mayor's office, the governor's office, the, you know, federal government were all dragging their feet a lot. And then now, like fast forward a few weeks later, it's clear that action was needed urgently and earlier. And it's been scary to see uh, now the, you know, unfortunate results of that early inaction. Um, you know, basically all care has been transformed. I'm a primary care doctor. Um, I rely on seeing my patients in person, and I all of my care has been transitioned towards telemedicine or canceled visits. Uh, my patients are, are living in fear. We initially were reaching out to them saying, you know, don't come in, and now they're calling us being like, I'm too scared to come in, and that's when we offer them the televisits. Uh, you know, I'm also, uh, you know, working with the city hotline uh, to answer COVID questions, um, and I think as of this point, we've we've fielded over 20,000 phone calls from people around the city trying to answer questions about, you know, what's happening on a changing basis. How should they respond to symptoms? How should they treat their loved ones? Um, you know, I've, I've done some COVID testing. We have a, a tent set up, um, and I've been working in that tent. And, you know, the, the PAPR mask, it has like an uh, air system within it, and it has a face shield, and you're all gowned and gloved. Um, and I've been doing that testing, and I've had lots of tests come back positive. I've had, you know, coworkers that I've been testing um, because they've been exposed. And, uh, you know, I think the main thing is, like, my colleagues on the front lines, you know, I, I am somewhat on the front lines, but with a very less population. Um, I might be a hospitalist in a week, but as of now, I'm, I'm still doing outpatient uh, care. And, you know, I, I just have these wonderful colleagues who are in uh, ICUs and ERs and hospital floors with ever-escalating amounts of patients. And, you know, they're scared about the lack of protective gear that they have. They're outraged about, you know, the lack of adequate uh, ventilators and even just, like, spacing and, you know, does this room connect to oxygen appropriately? Can we use all the space? You know, the, the, the issues are so extensive of how we have to adapt our health system to this. And the human toll that this is taking on, on health workers already is gigantic. And we're very early in this. And so I, I guess I would just say, you know, New York is looking how Italy looked a few weeks ago and looking how Wuhan looked months ago. And a lot of places around the country are, are watching what's happening in, in places like New York and saying like, oh, that's happening there. But we need to remember that this uh, pandemic, it spreads on, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks delay. And if you have cases now, and there aren't adequate measures to do the, the physical distancing, the social distancing, um, then, you know, where you are right now isn't, isn't safe yet either. Um, because unless you have a robust public health system, those strict physical distancing measures are the only thing that will keep uh, your community safe. And so, you know, I've been personally quite 
uh, scared and disappointed by, you know, the, the dozens of states nationwide that have not took taken stricter measures around physical distancing, like closing non-essential businesses or doing shelter in place. And so, yeah, if you don't want to have a really scary health crisis happening where you are, um, you know, I, I urge you to, to work on that. But in, in New York, it is scary right now, and it's still an early phase. Well, Andrew, I, I for one, am watching what, what's happening in, in New York, and I'm sure many of my colleagues are. And just yesterday, I received an email from the Society of Critical Care Medicine that uh, I'm not sure if it's I think it was Governor Cuomo sent out a call for healthcare volunteer that if you could travel to New York to come. And I was like, yes, I would like to come. However, I'm in Chicago, and Chicago is starting to ramp up. So I, I can't go anywhere now. But I think that just shows the seriousness of the problem uh, that you're having in New York, but also how this will impact the rest of the country. No place is unsafe. So. If you think that right now your numbers are low or that there's no activity in your area, you can be be assured that that will change in the, the coming weeks. So everybody, as Dr. Goldstein said, practice your physical distancing. I prefer the term physical distancing over social distancing. Keep your keep your six feet. Uh, stay inside. You're not doing anything unnecessary. Like everyone has a part in minimizing the uh, pandemic, flattening the curve. Dr. Goldstein, uh, any last thoughts you want to share with our audience today? Yeah, I think it's just so important for us to have a memory of, of how this pandemic has evolved and worsened and, and not been responded to. And, you know, every time you're told that you can't uh, see a doctor or get a test or you're a doctor and you don't have a mask, um, those are moments uh, of scarcity that were created by political decisions that happened before. These are the reasons why we need to be fighting for things like Medicare for all in the long term, why we need to be, you know, organizing right now for the government to use things like the Defense Production Act to make sure that, you know, supplies and healthcare tools are reaching everywhere that need it. Um, but, you know, oftentimes the moments that we find ourselves in were, were created before. And so, we need to remember that so that in current moments of possibility, we do the right thing and, and to meet everyone's basic needs and, and keep everyone as safe as possible. And lastly, Dr. Goldstein, well, I'll get that to that in a second. Um, one more question before we close off of two. Uh, listeners today, I want to thank you again for tuning in to Race, Violence, and Medicine. We've been talking with Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He's an assistant professor of internal medicine at NYU he is right now in the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic in New York. Gave us some very practical, some practical advice and solutions about how you can protect yourself, your families and friends, but also solutions that we as a society can address post-pandemic to ensure better health care for all. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, last thing, I know we've had a, we've had a very serious discussion and it's hard to uh, to uh, uh, avoid that what we're talking about is not to be made light of, but I want to get a sense of who you are. So when you have some time off, you're taking a break, are you working out, uh, what kind of music are you listening to to, to relax to? Yeah, um, I 
<laughs> Honestly, music gets like caught in my head so much that I feel like I don't listen to a ton anymore because it's just stuck in my head for weeks. Um, right. but I will tell you that I like binge watch Star Trek. I just love that oh, show. Yeah. It's a, a beautiful portrayal of a humanity that we could all have. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just really sort of portrays the values and, and characters that I, I love to uh, immerse myself in. We're, we're, that means we're kin, Dr. Goldstein. I'm a, I'm a Star Trek fan myself. I remember <laughs> watching the brief reruns uh, back in junior high and high school <laughs> every, every day after school. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, everyone. It's Dr. Andrew Goldstein. This is Ray Thomas in Medicine. I am Dr. Brian Williams. And also, I think you can reach you on Twitter, right? It's at Andrew you Make Tweet. Is that correct? Exactly. You can reach Dr. Goldstein on Twitter at Andrew Make Tweet. You can reach me on Twitter at BHWilliamsMD. And also, you can drop me a line at my website, BrianWilliamsMD.com. Thank you all for tuning in. Be safe.